As usual, before we start, this is your chance to pick up a 20% discount from a subscription to New Scientist magazine. All you have to do is go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers. And it's been great to see so many people signing up with this code. Yeah, there's loads of premium content, videos, features, interviews and an amazing archive of work going back years Pod 20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your bargain. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in science, both terrestrial and out of this galaxy. I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Kat Delange, I'm New Scientist Features Editor. And this week we're joined by New Scientist reporters Leah Crane and Graham Lawton. Hello. Hello. Hi. Coming up this week, we have the most endangered group of animals in the world, news of a planet in another galaxy, an update on coronavirus herd immunity, and this. I've actually had it done by three different companies using three different methodologies. By far the most accurate one said I was biologically 37, which is 13 years younger than I actually am. That's Graham talking about a test of his biological age. And later in the show, we'll be hearing about how being on a paleo diet can change the way you age. But before we get into that, let's hear some bird song. Uh, that was very nice. Uh, what is it? And why are you playing it? Uh, that was a white-crowned sparrow singing in San Francisco during lockdown. And they changed their songs to make them lower and apparently sexier. And that was very lovely. Okay. Now... Regular listeners will know that we got very excited a couple of weeks ago about the discovery of what might be a sign of life in the atmosphere of Venus. And now we've had time to digest the news and subject it to some sober analysis. And we're still very excited. But not to be outdone, Mars has hit back. Mars attacks. Yeah, Mars has physically attacked Venus. In, uh, no, Mars has... Uh, there have been some new findings on Mars. Um suggesting there's a large underground lake of water, liquid water, at the South Pole. I chatted with our space reporter, Leia Crane, about how we're going to verify life on Venus and about what the new discovery means for hopes of life on Mars. So, Leia, let's start with Venus. Uh, as a recap, a team found phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus. Remind us what the big deal was. The big deal is that Phosphine is a gas that on Earth is only produced by living organisms. There's no abiotic way to make it. So when the researchers found phosphine on Venus, the first thing they did was try to figure out how one could make it there. And they didn't find any non-biological mechanism that could make it, which right. doesn't mean that there isn't one, but is a tantalizing hint. Where are we now, first of all, with confirming that what they saw was indeed phosphine? There's a lot of work ahead of us right now. They really need to make more observations of phosphine on Venus to confirm it, but they had a bunch of observations scheduled and those observations were put off by COVID. So right now we're sort of waiting for observatories to open back up. Okay, so let's assume though that we do confirm that it's phosphine. What's next? Because we're we're still very far off from saying that there's life there, aren't we? Yeah, we're not anywhere near saying that it's life there. Uh, <laughs> a big problem that we have is that right now we really don't understand Venus or phosphine. 
And to understand how phosphine is produced on Venus, we need a pretty deep understanding of both of those. And that starts uh, in the laboratory, because right now when we model sort of what phosphine might do in Venus's atmosphere, there's a lot of guesswork going on. And it's educated guesswork, but it's still guesses. And do we know what the atmosphere is made up of? So can we kind of, in theory, get all those gases in the right proportions and and stick them into a room and, and make that a sort of mini Venus? Not necessarily. There's still a lot of open questions about the Venus atmosphere, but we can make something that's a lot closer than the guesses that are in our models so far. But it's pretty difficult. Yeah. I mean, the what we do know about it is that it's very nasty and corrosive. And, uh, and phosphine itself is a very... Well, it's toxic, isn't it? If you depend on oxygen, if you're an organism that needs oxygen like us it's toxic so it's really hard to work with it and then even once you've done even once we've recreated the atmosphere we then need to study it in all the different temperatures and pressures and interactions that are going on in something as complex as an entire atmospheric system yeah so not only will a very small amount of phosphine kill someone But all the other chemicals in Venus's atmosphere, or many of them, are really corrosive. So they're difficult to work with. You have to be extra careful. And you want to study it at really high temperatures and pressures, which are also hard to accomplish. So there's a lot of things that make these experiments difficult. And even once you overcome all those difficulties, there are an enormous variety of experiments that need to be performed many of these different things that are going on in the atmosphere, they they might be the thing that produces phosphine. Right, exactly. And we just don't know what kind of chemistry is happening in Venus's atmosphere. That's the big problem here. Mm. We need to know how every molecule in Venus's atmosphere interacts with every other molecule and how every wavelength of light interacts with those molecules and how that happens at every temperature and pressure in the atmosphere, which is a huge range. And we just really don't know that yet. So we really can't rule out anything definitively. So what about the news that volcanoes might be producing phosphine? That's if uh, volcanoes are active on Venus. A lot of researchers suspect that Venus might be volcanically active now, and that there might be some magma being pushed up to the surface And if that is occurring, that magma might contain the precursors that are needed to create phosphine. And it seems like if that's happening, it's plausible that it could be enough phosphine to account for this detection. You might notice there was a lot of maybes in there, a lot of mites. So it is a possible explanation, but it's another thing where we really just don't know enough about Venus to say for sure either way. Well, I'm very much feel like I've been put in my box now about phosphine. (laughs) Um, I'm going to, you know, it's still exciting. Um, So I'm going to hold on to that. Anyway, look, let's talk about Mars. Tell us about the, the the new finding on Mars. Yeah, so there was a finding a while back that suggested that there might be this big lake near the South Pole of Mars buried underneath a glacier. And a new finding has not only confirmed that that lake is pretty much definitely there, but also found that it's surrounded by these smaller ponds, and they're all made of liquid, probably liquid water. How deep under the ice cap are they, actually? 
So they're a little more than a kilometer under de- underneath the ice cap. Okay, so it's too hard to dig down and, and sample it directly. Um, but how come they're liquid? Because it's still really cold there, right? Yeah, so probably that water isn't pure, drinkable, lovely water. Probably right. it's a really salty brine that can uh, lower the freezing temperature of water so that it can stay liquid. So it is too deep to get to directly. Uh, so what's our best bet for finding what's going on on Mars? Is it just carry on as we are, which is to look for fossil evidence or maybe something that's eking out a living just below the surface of Mars? That's places we can get to easily with the rovers we've got there and with the one that's on its way. Yeah, I think so. I think our best bet for finding life is still going to be looking on and near the surface just because we don't have anything that can drill that deep on Mars. And so even if the best environment for life is in one of these underground ponds, it's still not the best place to look for it. Um, Just one other thing that strikes me about Venus, because, you know, you're talking about all the different temperatures and the corrosive nature of, of the atmosphere of Venus. And we often hear about the surface of Venus being hot enough to melt lead. But the Russians, um, or the Soviet Union as it was then, they landed 10 spacecraft on the surface of Venus in the 70s and 80s. So how the hell did they do that? Well, the answer to that is not for very long. (laughs) Um, The spacecraft, some of them surprisingly, most of them we did not really expect to be able to continue transmitting data as they went down through the atmosphere. And most of them did for a matter of minutes at most before the spacecraft just totally melted and fizzled and stopped working. Now it's time for our coronavirus update. Yeah, um, amid the constant statistics that we hear about all the time, some really hit home and and one that really made me stop this week was an analysis by researchers at the University of Oxford who found that if the United States had managed COVID in the same way as uh, it had been managed in Europe, about 60,000 lives would have been saved. And in other words, the poor response to the pandemic in the United States has cost more lives than World War One. That's really depressing. Um, yeah. But having said that, it's not like Europe is out of the woods. I mean, cases are rising here as well. Yeah, second wave is, well, pretty much on us now. I saw this week that some countries are now reporting more daily COVID-19 cases than they did during the first wave in March. And uh, epidemiologists that we spoke to for this week's magazine analysis expect that the epidemic will probably dwarf the size of the one in March and April. So I don't know, how much is that because we're just testing more people now, Kat? Yes, testing's part of it, but um, it's still a big cause for concern. The regional director for Europe for the WHO said that this rise in cases is a real wake-up call. Uh, We do have more testing, but regardless of that, we also have, he said, alarming rates of transmission across the region. Okay, so what is behind the second wave? Is it people have just relaxed about it? Lockdown's relaxed and people are going back to work and, and education? Yeah, the, a lot of the restrictions did did relax, so that would be part of it. Um, but basically, the rising case numbers indicate that either people aren't following the measures that are meant to prevent the spread or that those measures right now aren't, aren't sufficient. But the most important thing is that case numbers are rapidly rising. Uh, and so we'll probably see later increases in hospitalizations and in deaths. 
the good news is that the number of deaths among those infected, so the infection fatality rate, is expected to be lower during the second wave. That's partly because medical staff have more experience with the disease and um, we do have treatments um, like dexamethasone. So they've been shown to reduce the death rate. So hopefully, despite the huge surge in, in cases, the deaths will be will be lower this time around. Although that we've still got a long way to go, haven't we, through this? Yeah, so we definitely have a long way to go. And the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control uh, recently said that the population is still highly vulnerable. Um, Antibody surveys suggest that less than 15% of people in the EU and in the UK have immunity. So we're still largely very vulnerable. Yeah, and that obviously raises the question of herd immunity. And the threshold for that is thought to be about 60 to 70% of people. So that number of people would have had to have had the coronavirus to achieve herd immunity. But the truth is, we don't actually know whether that even that will lead to herd immunity. And this is actually one of my hobby horses. There's an often unstated assumption that high levels of individual immunity automatically create herd immunity. But that doesn't necessarily follow because people can be immune to the virus in the sense of not getting sick, but still catch and transmit it, in which case you don't get herd immunity. And that can be the case with natural infections and with vaccines. And some vaccines produce herd immunity because they stop transmission, but that is by accident, not by design. So even if 60% of people have had the virus, we don't necessarily get herd immunity. So it's just been a terrible thing to keep banging on about all the time. We still hear it, don't we? We still hear it as a sort of unspoken strategy that people are thinking about yeah I kind of think of it as the zombie strategy that every time (laughs) you think that you kind of you know put it to bed it just comes back again in a different slightly mutated form but but yeah it is very much part of the conversation at the moment and I think you know what we've been saying for for months now is that really and, and looking at other countries that are doing this better the best way to control the spread of the virus seems to be through testing and tracing. And, and we know that we don't have testing sorted at the moment. But, you know, until a vaccine is rolled out, I think that's that really looks like the best strategy, uh, especially if you look to countries that, that are doing a better job. I'm quite interested in China. They seem to they seem to be keeping numbers really low. And that seems to be through testing and tracing. Time out. We want to tell you about an online event coming up. On the 8th of October, Ilyas Khan, the founder of Cambridge Quantum Computing, is going to tell us all about the technology that promises to transform everything from drug discovery to machine learning and cybersecurity, and it's fast becoming a reality. You'll be able to hear the very latest about the development that could quite possibly change the world. And it's super timely because a quantum computing company based in Canada has just announced what it claims is by far the largest and most powerful quantum computer in existence. So Mm -hmm. it's essential watching. On the 8th of October, go to newscientist.com slash events to find out all about our live online events and watch them on our archive. Next up, this week in the mag, we're reporting on a new way of calculating our biological age based on the bacteria in our gut. Yeah, so there are lots of aspects of ageing that we report on a lot. So the biological and environmental factors that contribute to long life and maybe how you can game the system to live a bit longer. But this is something I've looked into in the past too, which is biological age versus chronological age. So chronological age is the number of years on the clock. Biological age is how your body really is. Uh, The idea that is that if your body and your cells age better or worse or slower or faster, your body could be younger or older than its actual age in years. Right. And there are various ways to estimate this, aren't there? Um, And what they've done now is look at bacteria in the gut 
And that's, that seems like a good one because we know that the microbiome, that the collection of bacteria in our gut, we know that that changes with age and with diet. Yeah. And so this study is looking at a particular diet, people who are on the paleo diet. All right. You have to remind me what that, that is. So, so yeah, so this is a, a, a kind of, it's been a bit of a fad. Um, it's also known as the caveman diet. And it's the idea that you eat the same as our ancestors did in the Paleolithic um, or the Stone Age hundreds of thousands of years ago, so that, that we evolved to eat in that way. But is it still a thing? Uh, this You said it was a fad. Is it still going? You know, there was that one where people just feasted on raw meat. Yeah, I think it wasn't raw meat. I think it's just meat. Uh, that's the Atkins diet. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, but the paleo diet is basically, you know, things that you could in theory forage. Um, you're probably going to be foraging them from your local supermarket. But, you know, fruit, vegetables, lean meat, fish, nuts and just not processed food and anything containing lots of refined sugar and salt and all the, the nasties that we associate with that. So trans fats, um, no dairy, just, yeah, things that you could have uh, gathered yourself were you a stone aged <laughs> caveman or woman. So the thing this week um, is that a study has found that people following the paleo diet are nearly two years older on average compared to people who who don't eat the diet. But that's isn't that the stress of living in the stone age that makes them older? <laughs> well I mean seriously what what way are they older? Is it something to do with biomarkers that are used to estimate their biological age? So this test measured genes active in the bacteria of the gut so it's not the bacteria themselves, but it's more precisely the genes that that are active. And um, by this measure, people on the paleo diet were younger, but their biological age is actually older than average. So not equivalent to the number of years on the clock, as, as you say, Graham. Graham, you had a, you had your biological age tested and didn't it turn out that you were young? I, I know it did because you trumpeted it around the office that you had a, <laughs> y- a younger biological yeah. age than your chronological age, wasn't it? I've actually had it done by three different companies using three different methodologies. They all made me younger than my chronological Yeah, they chronological took your money age. and said, oh yes, you're younger. Give us some more money and <laughs> well, there is, you're even there is younger. That, there is that aspect to it. But yeah. my, by far the most accurate one said I was biologically 37, which is 13 years younger than I actually am. Wow. I don't know whether it was actually the most accurate one but it's the one that I choose to believe definitely yeah (laughs) Uh, but I guess the key question is do we know that the biological age is an accurate predictor of life expectancy because you know sometimes we see claims that tests for the biological age themselves can predict whether a person's more likely to develop a chronic disease or, or even die in the near future Yeah, I mean, in theory, a really good test will look directly at or at least look at some proxies for what are called the hallmarks of ageing, which is the biological way that our bodies decline with time. So that would be the functioning of vital organs, uh, metabolic health, body weight, and markers of inflammation is a really crucial one. And maybe immune function too, because we know that declines quite precipitously as you get older. Yeah, so there was another study where a bunch of people who were 38 years old were tested for their biological age and then they came back and were tested again seven years later and they found that people whose biomarkers suggested they were aging faster the first time around were actually starting to show physical and mental signs of aging more so than those who who didn't have those biomarkers. By the way, I just have to give a shout out to the researchers who had to analyse 90,000 stool samples for this study, uh, which would really sap my life expectancy, I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it is, you know, that is huge. It is the largest study study to date on this. 
Yeah, well, so what do they think is actually going on? So it might be that uh, people with poor health are more likely to try the paleo diet um, in the first place rather than this actually being a result of the diet. You can't rule that out. So they're going to have a look at that. Uh, But we do know that if you have certain health problems and, and if you're overweight, the paleo diet can help you to lose weight and reduce your blood pressure. Uh, but it can also lead to vitamin and mineral deficiencies. Uh, so talking of other kinds of diets, Rowan, the ketogenic diet, that's low carb, high fat. People on that diet had biological age nearly two years older than average. <laughs> so are there any diets that make you younger, for God's sake? Yeah, uh, boring uh, and straightforward, but vegetarians fare the best. It's not so, boring. Uh, Yay. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, it, uh, what I mean is it's not some sort of fancy fad diet where you have to forage around for your nuts. But um, right. <laughs> so, so vegetarians are around a year and a half younger biologically than meat eaters on average. Great yeah. news. Great. Uh, but uh, booze can counteract that. Mm, oh, yeah, no good. There's always a downside, isn't there? Yeah. So, so women who reported drinking more than a unit one unit of alcohol a day and men who drink more than two units a day were nearly a year older on average. Interestingly, people who say they eat organic food were around half a year older. Um, but just to row back, what what is the idea behind getting a test of biological age, Graham? Is it that eventually you'd be able to go to the doctor, find out a direct indication of how you're aging and then do something about it? Is it, is it a kind of shock tactic to make change to your life? Yeah, I mean, I see it as kind of as a, as a wake-up call, really, and also an, an incentive because unlike your chronological age, your biological age can go down as well as up, and you can force it down by making lifestyle changes. So it's almost like gamifying health. You know, the goal is to get your age down to as low as possible and keep it there. But you you were 13 years younger, so did that just give you licence to go out and, and start caning it? <laughs> well, and then along came a <laughs> pandemic, so yeah. yeah And now it's time to take stock of our place in the bigger picture of the cosmos. Yes, it's the total perspective vortex. Rowan, you've got some exoplanet news. Yeah, usually the discovery of an exoplanet, which is a planet outside of our solar system, it well, it doesn't even make the news anymore because we've seen so many of them, but this one does. Go on. Well, this one isn't just outside of our solar system, it's outside of our galaxy. Astronomers have discovered a planet in a galaxy called M51, which is also known as the Whirlpool Galaxy. It's a very pretty looking galaxy. You'd probably recognise it if you saw a picture. That must be pretty far away. How can we possibly see it? How can we see a planet that far away? Yeah, it's 28 million light years away, so it is quite far away. Um, And the astronomers found the planet, though, basically in the same way that they look for planets in this galaxy, which is uh, looking for signs of transits. And they occur when a planet blocks out the light when it passes in front of a star so the star briefly dims if you're looking through a telescope and comes back on again as the planet goes past so it's it's pretty cool that they've seen this thing but is that not to be expected yeah yeah it's totally to be expected um and almost every time we've looked carefully at stars in this galaxy we found possible exoplanets so there's every reason to expect to see them in other galaxies uh, and does this change the Drake equation, so the attempt to estimate intelligent life out there? Yeah, I did wonder that. The Drake equation is a way to estimate the number of alien civilizations in our galaxy that might be broadcasting radio signals at any given time. And Drake's lower estimate is 20, and his upper estimate is about 50 million. 
and that's just in our galaxy. So if you wanted to include other galaxies, yeah, it would totally inflate that. But the, I guess the big but is that we wouldn't be able to confirm anything in another galaxy because it's hard enough in this one. It's hard enough, uh, it's our, as we've been talking about Venus, it's hard enough when the planet's right next door. So hang on, this is 28 million light years away. So that means that we're seeing this planet 28 million years in the past. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the big problems with if you want to try and communicate with aliens. It's not so much the distances involved as the time. Um, Civilizations just don't last that long, probably. Um, 28 million years ago on Earth isn't actually very long in terms of its uh, geological time. But in evolutionary time, so much has happened. Uh, 28 million years ago, pigs and cats have just evolved on Earth. And primates were around, um, but great apes, our group, hadn't even evolved. And incidentally, we have a big story on the likelihood or not of intelligent life in the cosmos in this week's mag. It's the cover story. Yeah, we've been calling it Alone in the Cosmos, uh, which kind of (laughs) hints at uh, where it's going. But back to this planet uh, in M51. Does it have a name? Yeah, it does. It's called M51 ULS1B. Uh, I don't know why the B is there. I should have said, too, it was seen with a space telescope. That's one orbiting um, Earth, not one here on Earth. Uh, it was seen with the Chandra X-ray Observatory. OK, so I mean, it's pretty cool. If, we're, if we can say that this planet exists, it will be our first observation of a world outside the Milky Way, right? So we'd be able to say maybe we're not alone, not just in the galaxy, but in the universe. Yeah, yeah, so I love the total perspective vortex from the Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy, but literally this is about uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so why aren't we going with Star Wars? <laughs> well, I was <laughs> going to, but then ludicrously I found out that the Star Wars galaxy is actually thought to be a real galaxy M31, not this one M51, so I didn't want to upset any Star Wars uh, aficionados. Um, There has been some sci-fi set in this galaxy, but nothing I'd ever heard of. So the total perspective vortex was a better one, I thought. Now, you can't have failed to hear about the extinction crisis, the massive loss of different species that we're seeing all over the world. We spoke a few weeks ago on the podcast about the huge crash in the vertebrate populations and the failure to meet any of the biodiversity protection targets. But the identity of the most endangered group of animals in the world might surprise you. This is the subject of a big story in this week's mag. Uh, It's not great apes or great whales or the corals or the Great Barrier Reef. Graham, what is it? It's fish. It's great fish. Hmm. So specifically sturgeons and their close relatives, the paddlefish. Together they comprise 27 species, but 17 of them are in the most precarious category on the red list of endangered species, which is critically endangered. And did I just say 27 species? Actually, let's make that 26, because earlier this year, scientists broke the sad news that one of the greatest of them all, which is the Chinese giant paddlefish, which grew up to seven metres long, is almost certainly extinct. You know, it hasn't been seen in the Yangtze River Basin since 2003, and a recent exhaustive survey failed to find any at all. Now, these fish are part of a group called the freshwater megafauna, aren't they? Can you tell us about that? Because why do we call them megafauna? When usually we think of that, or I think of that, as referring to woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and things that went extinct in the Ice Age. 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. Megafauna usually does refer to big land animals like rhinos and tigers and, and those ones that were probably wiped out by humans that you mentioned. But there are megafauna in freshwater too, and they mm. actually largely survived the last ice age, the slaughter of the woolly mammoths and so on. But now, sadly, they're in really big trouble, uh, and they include those sturgeons and paddlefish, but also giant catfish, river sharks and rays and other things like dolphins, porpoises, seals, crocodiles, mm. alligators, snakes, you know, anything that lives in freshwater and is bigger than about 40 kilos is classed as freshwater megafauna. And that right. category is declining faster than any other category of animal. I mean, all told, there are about 200 species of freshwater megafauna. Most of them are, are in trouble. Some are probably already doomed to extinction. And yet they're largely overlooked in efforts to save the world's biodiversity. Um, I guess... Well, I don't want to belittle the extinction of an animal at all, but for a big animal, uh, the paddlefish, to go extinct in the Yangtze is not surprising, is it? Um, you know, we know that the Baiji River dolphin went extinct there, probably loads more, uh, because the river has just been really ruined, hasn't it? It has been ruined, but it's actually a good kind of case study of what's happening to the really big river fish worldwide. So the Yangtze has been annihilated by decades of habitat loss, pollution, development and overfishing. I mean, there's an awful lot of meat on a big paddlefish. But the final straw really was the dams. So in 1981, China built the first really big hydroelectric dam across the Yangtze, which separated the fish's feeding grounds in the lower Yangtze from its breeding grounds upriver. And then the Three Gorges Dam just made that worse. And scientists think that these made the fish functionally extinct, which means unable to reproduce. And it's just taken a couple of decades for them all to die. Right. Um, but actually, some river systems are even worse than the Yangtze. So worst of all are the Danube in Europe, the Mississippi, uh, the Shat al-Arab in Iraq and the Orange in southern Africa. Now, they all have their own mega species that are in trouble. Why do you think we haven't been hearing about all this? Well, we're going to some detail in this week's mag, but in a nutshell, there's a blind spot in conservation. Um, so even though rivers and lakes, and that excludes wetlands, cover just 1% of Earth's surface, they harbour about a third of all vertebrates and half of all fish. And they really ought to be seen as a separate, a sort of a uniquely vulnerable category alongside the terrestrial and marine ecosystems. But they're usually just lumped in with the former and, and then so they get ignored. We have seen some good noises this week. Uh, there's a big virtual UN biodiversity summit going on at the moment. And we saw pledges from world leaders on biodiversity. 72 countries signed a leader's pledge for nature, promising to address environmental destruction and saying they would reverse biodiversity loss by 2030. What did you make of that, Graham? I mean, I hate to be cynical, but, you know, we have been here before. Pledges are really easy to make and mm. really hard to keep. And I think it's worth pointing out that the pledge has not been signed by leaders of the US, China, India, Brazil, Russia and Australia. And obviously they are really big players in this world. Um, and I'll just read you a quote, actually. So it says, we've woken to a new threat that by our actions we could insidiously but just as certainly achieve the same result, the destruction of the globe. We are alive to the danger. We know the remedy. Now, that quote is from a British prime minister, but it's not yeah. the current British prime minister. It's not the one before that or the one before that or the one before that or even the one before that. Oh, my God. This is John Major in 1992, 28 years ago, at Earth Summit, and we know what that produced, almost right. nothing. Mm. So what we need is uh, real teeth in these uh, agreements. We need binding commitment and assessments by independent agencies. 
Um, you might have seen that the conservation organisation Flora, Fauna and Flora International got an appeal with 140 nature con- conservation groups from 50 countries and delivered it to the UN this week, asking for $500 billion to protect biodiversity. Do you see that? Yeah, I did see that. And this is you know, an opportunity for leaders now to put their money where their mouths right, are. Right. Um, and like we were talking about last week about China saying they want to go to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and that would cost them 180 billion a year. Um, this 500 billion that is being asked for, it sounds like a lot, but it could easily be found and, and it actually has to be found. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us, Graham and Leah, and thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. And do please get in touch. I want to start a section on the show where we directly answer your questions about science. So do send them in and we'll give you a shout out. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. In the meantime, do spread the word about our show. Until next time, take care and goodbye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.